Luke chapter 15, we have the parable of the forgiving father. At the beginning of Luke chapter 15, look at verse 1. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them a parable, saying, The religious leaders of ancient Judaism did not like the fact that Jesus was reconciled and welcomed sinners into the fold. Tax gatherers, publicans, sinners, and they're grumbling about his association with sinners. Well, look at verse 11 where he begins our story. And he said, a certain man had two sons. While this parable is most often presented as the parable of the prodigal son, it is probably best entitled the forgiving father. Only one character, the father, is involved in all the conversations of the story. In fact, when we read parables, we often find their meaning in the midst of the conversations of the characters. And there's only one character present for all the conversations, and that is the forgiving father. It's told with an economy of words. There are never more than two players on the stage of the story at any given time. And the central character is the father, a certain man, and how he relates to his two sons. The father in each conversation is reacting to a returning boy, a returning son. The first son comes from a foreign land, from afar, from sin. The second son comes in obediently from the field. And the certain man represents, of course, God himself. The father is the main character and the parable of forgiveness, this parable from Luke on our father's day. Look at verse 12. And the younger with him said to his father, Father, give me the share of the state that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. Now it's hard to make too much of the actions of this runaway boy by demanding that he receive right now his portion of the inheritance, which would be one-third as the younger son, the older son keeping two-thirds. He's showing he has no concern for the safety or security of his father in his senior years. The son wants his share, and he wants it now. It is as if he's saying, I wish you were already dead, but since you aren't dead, I'm going to take my portion now. I can't wait on you to die. You need to know that this is a collectivism society. It's not just about the boy. He hurts everybody in his father's clan, down to the lowest servant. You see now, one-third of the land, the farm has to be sold. The cross will be one-third less for everybody. He not only impacts his father and his older brother, he impacts countless lives of servants and workers on the farm. Ancient Jewish writings we have found that actually warn fathers about divvying out their inheritance to their sons too early. It didn't happen often, but the fact that we found these Jewish writings shows that it did sometimes occur, and they were warned against the regrettable and rash decisions to distribute the wealth before their death. 
Now this Jewish lad, probably about 17 years of age, declares by his actions, he is denying his relationship with his father. He's denying his relationship with his family. He's saying, show me my money now. Forget the father, forget the farm, forget the workers, the servants, the slaves. At a conference for pastors I, I attended a few years ago, there's a prayer time where the ministers can ask the other ministers to pray for them. And during this particular prayer time, one of the ministers shared that on a Sunday night following the church service that one of his sons came to him, handed him a three-page single-space letter. I, I could best summarize it this way. Dear mom and dad, you have been great parents, but I have to be honest with you. I'm done with this Christianity thing. I will come to church when I'm home from college so you can save face, dad. But when I'm away at school, I am finished with the gospel. The father replied to his son crying, I, I failed you as a pastor to teach you rightly if you think this way. The son says, oh no, dad, it's, it's not about that. It's not about you. During this time of prayer request, another pastor opened up and said he had a daughter who had previously done the same thing. And when the prayer time was over, I watched these two ministers embrace each other, ministers who each had a wandering child because they understood each other's pain. The pain that comes to a father when he has a runaway child to the secular world. The pastor of the wayward son said to his boy, if you want to go on a journey, reading all the religions, reading on the philosophers, let's pick the books. I'll go on the journey with you, but I will not get stuck with you. Some folks get stuck on a journey seeking truth and never come home again. As each of these ministers shared their story, I couldn't help but think that the God of the parable knows their pain too. For God is, in this story, the certain man who has two sons, and one of them says, I'm done with you, I'm done with the faith, I'm done with the farm, I'm done with the family. And the other son actually doesn't come very close either as he closes his heart to the grace of the Father. Look at verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country and he squandered his estate with loose living. The son gathered everything together. That's another way of saying he turned his portion of the farm into cash. And fleeing on the journey, the younger son hopes to get away from his father and his father's household. And the fewest words, the writer of the story tells us that the boy had blown his bundle. He squandered everything that he had, his portion of the farm, on loose living. Now, interestingly enough, the elder son in verse 30 tells you exactly what the younger son did. How does he know and what's on his mind? He says, he devoured your wealth with prostitutes. The story doesn't say that. The older son says that. Anticipating such foolish actions by young men, wisdom literature of ancient Israel, some of it in Proverbs, some of it in extra-biblical writings, warns against this kind of living. 
We find in one ancient Jewish book, not in our canon, do not give yourself to prostitutes or you will lose your inheritance. Exactly what happens here was written in the second century B.C. Or Proverbs says, whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. The younger son, therefore, is the undisciplined boy of the proverbial sages in wisdom literature. And while the older son, we would expect, should, she, should reap all the rewards of obedience. Well, look what happens in verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be in need. And when he attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. The son ran away to be apart from the watchful eye of his father. He fled to be free in a foreign land. But it is always the case, sin sank in and began to demand its destructive toll. While wallowing in the pig pen, the son realizing he's exchanged freedom found in obedience to his father with slavery to his sinful nature, he is bankrupt both financially and spiritually, and he longs for home. The severe famine drives the runaway boy to the rock bottom as a Jewish lad. He's feeding the pigs. I don't know which would be more alarming, the fact that he's dwelling among the Gentiles, that was considered unclean, or in the, the business of the swine, that was also unclean. Look at the turning point in verse 16 and 7. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? Finding himself thigh high in pig pods, the runaway lad comes to his senses and decide it would be better to be the slave in his father's house than to be starving, surrounded by swine. He picks himself up out of the pig pen and goes to the father. Once again, a young man has learned his lessons in wisdom. Proverbs 13 says, whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame. Or Proverbs 13 again says, the righteous eat to their heart's content, the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. The language of verse 17, he comes to his senses, is language of openness to repentance. Throughout the scriptures, when one is returning, one is repenting, and one is willing to come home to the Father, he learned the wisdom of life away from the Father on the road of suffering. Look at verse 18 and 19. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me one of your hired men. He confesses, I have sinned against heaven, meaning I have sinned against God. I'll give him this. He didn't blame anybody else in the story. He takes full responsibility for his decisions, his actions, and his sin. He says, I have sinned against God. He is destroyed and he alone, his relationship with the Father and thus 
signifying his relationship with God. Look at verse 20. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. My favorite verse in the Gospel of Luke is Luke 15, 20. But while he was still a long way off. How many times had the father looked over the horizon looking for the silhouette of his son coming home? How many times had he longed for that boy to come back to the farm, to come back to the family, to repent of his sins and to be reconciled? The fact that he sees, the father sees the silhouette of the son while he's a long way off tells me that every day the father had awakened and the first thing he did was look to the hillside to see if his son was coming home. It was going to be the day of reconciliation and the day of repentance. Will this be the day? He wondered. Is the father looking over the hillside for you today? Is the father looking for the silhouette of you, daughter, or you, son, today to come home? Does he wake up every morning pondering, will this be the day that he will turn or she will return? They will come to their senses. They'll be embraced by the father. and Welcome home. Now the father does an uncanny thing. The father runs to the son. Look at verse 20. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. In the Mediterranean culture or the Oriental culture, a father wouldn't run. Not a father like this. In fact, we read in one ancient Jewish writing written in the second century BC that a nobleman is known by his gait by his slow, dignified pace that shows he's in control of his calendar, his time, and his resources. A dignified pace that betokens his place in the community. The father forgets about all decorum and he runs because this is the son, the silhouette of the son that he's been looking for day and day and day again. The father's love is unconditional. Before the boy utters a word, he starts kissing and embracing and welcoming home. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no, no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. All this is a sign of forgiveness and restoration. The running, the embrace, the kiss, the robe, the ring, the sandals, the fattened calf. They're just layers here, aren't they? To show you if you've got any doubt, he is not being accepted as a slave. He is coming home as a son. There's layer upon layer. The run, the ring, the embrace, the sandals, the robe, the fattened calf. The fattened calf says it's going to be a village celebration. 
When you killed the calf, you had to invite everybody in the village. Meat couldn't be kept. It was a village celebration. The boy, the one we've been longing for, has come home. Look at verse 24. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found and they began to be merry. In verse 24 and verse 32, we are told twice that he's lost and he's found. He's dead and he's alive. In this story, there is no worse condition than dead. And there's no better solution than life. He was at the lowest moment, dead, dead to his family. And now he's at the greatest apex. He's alive again. He's returned home to his family. It's the imagery of resurrection. Dead, but alive. Famed preacher Fred Craddock once preached a sermon on the prodigal homecoming in Blue Ridge, old town, close to where he lives and gets his mail. In some denominations, like Craddock's denomination, they tell the preacher what to preach. We're free willing as Baptists, but they're told what they're going to preach. And he preached from Luke 15 as the assigned text that day. And after the sermon, a man came to him and said, I don't care much for that story. Why, asked the preacher. Well, it's not so much your sermon, said the, the griping man. I just don't like the story. What do you not like about it? It's not morally responsible, said the man. What do you mean by that? The preacher responded, forgiving that boy. What would you have done? The preacher asked. I think when he came home, he should have been arrested. Now, the preacher thought this is a joke somewhere. He kept waiting on the joke. Because this story's the gospel, right? <laughs> he kept waiting on the punchline, but there was no punchline. You see, this fellow, an attorney, lived in an unofficial organization nationwide. They don't have a name and they don't have any meetings, but they're very strong. Sometimes they're called the quality control people. Sometimes they're called the moral police. They want to make sure that everybody gets a mandatory sentence for their sin without parole. And actually, they prefer execution when they can get it. Well, asked the preacher, what would you have done? I'd have given him six years, the man said. Embodying the spirit of the Pharisees. Cratus said he sees the problem with the story. So a few weeks later, he was called to another church to teach a lady's Sunday school class. And so he was reading the story. When he got to the story that the son came home, he just fixed it because it was broken according to the other man. And so when he got that part, he read and he said, and he was arrested and assigned to prison for six years. And some lady in the class said, well, that's the way it should have been. <laughs> Somehow we have problems with this. Forgiveness. Sometimes, unfortunately, we're like the elder son. Look at his story in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and when he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring why, what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. 
And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and yet you've never given me a goat that I might be married with my friends. But when your son of yours, notice, he does not call him my brother. That's a masterful literary craft. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. The dad said to him, my child, you've always been with me and all that is mine is now yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice. Look at what he calls him, this brother of yours. He won't let him get away with not claiming his brotherhood. This brother of yours. Your brother was dead. And has begun to live. He was lost. And we found him. The older boy, in a masterful literary stroke, is acting out the part of the Pharisee in verses 1 and 2. You see, previously in the gospel, when Jesus received tax gatherers and sinners, and he sat down and ate with them and rejoiced with them and had a party with them, the Pharisees didn't like it. They grumbled. Because one that was a sinner had been accepted into the fold. And now the elder son, disassociating himself with his brother, acts like the Pharisees. Which, with which we begin the chapter. We begin the chapter of the Pharisee. We end the chapter with a symbol of the Pharisees and the eldest son. He couldn't, he couldn't rejoice that his dead brother was now alive and that his lost brother was now found. He's more concerned with the loss of property than he is the loss of his brother. Sadly enough, the story ends with the elder son standing outside of the party And the father, just like he goes out to meet the youngest son, he goes out to meet the oldest boy right where he lives. I mean, it is complex. I get it. I think I would be the elder son in the story. I'm not throwing stones at him. He's done everything right. Doesn't know why the other boy is now welcomed back when he's really messed up the family with the selling of one third of the farm. Everybody's hurt by his brother's actions. But at the end, he's outside the story. And God goes out to him. The father goes out to him and reminds him, everything that I have has always been yours. You never lost your place. You never lost your position. We're rejoicing because the one that was lost has been found. And the one that is dead is now alive. Won't you come in and join the party? Won't you dance and sing and be merry that the lost have been found and the dead have been raised to life again? The elder son wasn't willing to share the spotlight. And for that, he seemingly misses the party. When we read a parable, we are to identify with a character in the story, and you're probably one of the two boys. 
Are you the son? Are you the daughter? Are you the child that's running away from the father, running away from your family's faith? Is that who you are today? You think freedom would be a wonderful thing until you find that in that freedom to sin, you find yourself enslaved. How wonderful it is to live in the freedom of obedience to the father. Is a father looking for you over the hillside to come back to the faith? If you'll come back today, he'll run to meet you. He'll embrace you and kiss you and put shoes on your feet and a ring on your finger, a robe on your back, and he'll kill the fattened calf and he'll throw a party. Are you that child today? Do you need to come to faith today? Do you need to return and repent today? Or maybe some of us are more likely to identify with the elder brother. We've been keeping the rules, at least as best we can tell. And how dare someone on the outside come and join the party and it doesn't seem right and it doesn't add up and grace, how do we give grace and we don't understand grace and yet we need grace too. Are you the elder child today? pouting at the wonderful party, the party of grace. Are you in danger of missing grace as the elder child? However, God is speaking to you today. And fathers, we're reminded of being that dad who runs, embraces, kiss, forgives, and rejoices. The child was lost, but now he's found. The boy was dead, dead, but now he's alive again. Let's pray. Oh God, there are some wayward children this morning. They need to pick themselves up out of the pig pen and come openly confessing just like this boy did. Need to come home. There are other moms and dads out there today who have wayward children and we join with them in praying this morning for the children to reach the pig pen so they'll come home. And there's some of us here today, oh God, unfortunately, myself included, who find themselves too easily in the role of the pouting son at the party. Help us to see we no less need your grace. We need a father who will run to embrace us too. And may we respond to his invitation to rejoice over grace. That we too learn to forgive. In Christ's name, amen.